Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. But here we go, verse number one. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Great is mega, that's the word, a huge, great sign, a marvelous sign, meaning it was awe-inspiring, it was breathtaking. You could put it this way, I saw something that knocked my socks off, is what he said. What was it that John just saw, the sign, that knocked his socks off? Well, here it is. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. My wife and I are uh, musical fans. We are not avid musical theater fans, but we're like mediocre fans. And we've had a habit for years that once or twice a year, we will get to a musical somewhere, maybe at Benidorm or uh, maybe at West Virginia WVU. Sometimes they'll host different musicals that come through, different places. And we like to go to them. One of the more famous musicals over the last decade, perhaps the most famous over the last decade, is a musical called Hamilton about the founding father, Alexander Hamilton. And it's a loose biography of his life. And the opening scene of that uh, show, the opening musical number, they begin to sing about young Alexander Hamilton, who's this immigrant in his life in the early days. But then there are characters who step up and they introduce themselves, characters that young Alexander didn't know, characters that will be later on in his life, but they step up and they say, here's who I am, I loved him, I fought with him, I this or that. And one of them is Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, who is notable in history, and the name may ring a bell for you, but Aaron Burr steps up and he says, I'm the guy that shot Alexander Hamilton. And then he leaves and the show goes on, right? And as the show goes on, it begins to unfold. Alexander meets Aaron Burr and their, and their classmates, and then they fight in the war together, and then they litigate together as lawyers. But the whole time, you know, they started the show by telling me, this guy's going to shoot this guy. And then it kind of climaxes the end of the show. In fact, Aaron Burr does shoot and kill Alexander Hamilton, which is what happened in history. But it's this moment where at the very beginning, you get the picture and then it just begins to unfold it little by little by little, but you know what's coming at the end. It's a preview. This is what's happening in Revelation 15. It's not a long chapter, but verse number one gives you a preview of where you're going to end in verse number eight. And verse two and three and four and five and six and seven are going to unfold and get you back to where you started in verse number one. So verse number one is a preview of what we will see unfold over the next few verses here. And it tells us in verse number two, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now we've already seen the sea of glass in chapter number four. It was what surrounded the throne room of God. This is where God sits, you're in heaven now. And they were drawn into this vision that is in the heavenlies. And it says, And then that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So there's this new cast of characters. These people that have gotten victory over the beast and his image and these things that we've already unfolded through chapters 11 and 12 and 13. And if you weren't here for that, I'm sorry. You can go back and listen to the sermons and get more of like, what is this talking about? But these are those that have gotten victory. And there's a natural question. 
Okay, these are the victorious ones, but they're in heaven, which means they're dead, right? Yes. Well, if they died, like that is, is that victory? Is that victorious? And the answer is yes. This, this kind of tips us into how God keeps score. That ultimately God would say, these are the victorious ones. The scoreboard gets tallied on my side, not on the devil's side, because these are the ones that are victorious. How are they victorious? They died. They were martyred apparently. Well, because they were faithful. The devil threw everything he had at them via the Antichrist and the false prophet and what we've seen in these chapters. And he threw everything he had at them and they remained courageous, they remained steadfast, they remained faithful, and because of that, God could say, the victory is theirs. These are the victorious ones. And we know as Christians that even death itself should not be looked at as a loss, right? Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we learn that, oh, death, where is your sting? And oh, grave, where is your victory? The victory of death is gone now. The victory of the grave is gone now, and even those that are in heaven would have a celebratory stance, would have a victorious stance. But then they begin to sing. And you get in verse number three this song. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. You say, Moses? How did Moses get in here? Like, doesn't Moses belong in the Old Testament? Doesn't he belong in the first half of the Bible? Like, where'd he come from? And yeah, he does belong in the Old Testament, but Moses was a musician. Musician. That was a tough word to say. Moses wrote the song of Moses in Exodus. Moses wrote another song in Deuteronomy. Moses wrote many other songs, some of which are in the Psalter. Psalm chapter number 90 is a psalm of Moses. But this one in particular is the song of deliverance and high praise. When God's people were delivered out of Egypt via the plagues and they exit, and then ultimately as they exit, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army pursue them and they are consumed and on the other side of the Red Sea, God's people begin to give praise and glory and begin to sing the song of Moses. And they, these people begin to sing this song of deliverance and praise. But then it says they also sing the song of the Lamb, which is also a song of deliverance and praise. And I just want to pause for a moment because we've seen so much music in the book of Revelation and just say, thank God for music. Thank God for song. Thank God for melodies that allow us to express praise to our Heavenly Father and to the Lord Jesus. It's important that God's people sing. We just sang, I know. We sang four songs and the choir sang to us. So we had five songs already this morning. I hope you didn't stand there like a wooden Indian and not sing. Singing's important because when you verbalize a truth, you vitalize a truth. When you take the thoughts that are bouncing around your heart and your head mingled with the 18,000 other thoughts that are bouncing around your heart and head and you choose to latch onto one and to express it and to verbalize it, you begin to animate that truth in a way you never will if you don't actually verbalize it. Singing the truth of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and, and declaring his praises even in song form is an important exercise for God's people. Someone once noted that you have just as many commands to sing to God in the Bible as you do to pray to God in the Bible. Singing is, is vitally important. I like the way Isaac Watts put it in his hymn, We're Marching to Zion. He has this little refrain in the hymn, and he says, let those refuse to sing 
who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king, sing your joys abroad. And I would tell you, children of the heavenly king, sing your joys abroad. Like that is what the people of God should do. You say, pastor, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like singing. You know, life is heavy and I'm stressed out and you don't know the, the demands that I have at work right now. You don't know what I'm going through physically. I have some grief in my heart. I just don't feel like singing. Listen, all the more reason to sing. You have something to sing about if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's important that even in your dark moments that you sing. I think a great example of this is actually from the 1600s. In London, in 1665 and in 1666, they were brutal years that were back-to-back. 1665 was the bubonic plague. 20% of the people in London died in a year. So to put that in perspective, this year and in a couple weeks, Freeport High will graduate, I don't know, 200 seniors. What if this school year, out of those 200 seniors, 40 of them died? You would say that would be a crazy, unbelievable travesty if 40 of the 200 seniors died. Yes, exactly. That was 1665. 1666 was the Great London Fire burned 80% of the city to the ground. 20% of the people dead, then 80% of the people, 80% of the city burned to the ground. Back to back years. As you can imagine, there was gloom, there was doom, there was despair, there was despondency in the air. But there was one spiritual optimist, a bishop in London, a man by the name of Thomas Ken, who decided that even in the middle of all of this craziness, He would praise his God and he pinned the words, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He wrote the doxology, a song that for hundreds of years now, churches have sung over and over and over and over. You want to try to sing this morning? Thank you. Mel does. If you don't want to, we're going to do it, okay? That's the doxology. I have the lyrics, have the lyrics right there for you, okay? Can we sing? Okay, let's sing it. Here we go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Got to add the amen. Amen. It is beautiful when the people of God sing, isn't it? It's beautiful when the people of God sing. And here's this moment where they they begin to sing the song of Moses. They begin to sing the song of the Lamb. And they begin to say, here are the words, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. We praise your works, we praise your ways. Your works knock our socks off. They're great and marvelous. Your ways are just and true, just, fair, true, without error. What you do is right, God. They're they're echoing actually David's words and his song of victory from 2 Samuel where David said, as for God, his way is perfect. 
They continue to sing in verse number four, and they say, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And they sing. I actually became slightly convicted about this about a year or so ago with my children. And I thought, how often do I sing with my children? It's not like we sit around the dinner table and we sing, you know? I thought, we're going to start incorporating this into our family life. And we had a habit for years that before bedtime, we'd get the kids together and we'd read a Bible story or tell something from the Bible and then we would pray and we'd pray and play the pick game. That's what my youngest son calls it, which means you pray and then you get to pick the next person who prays after you. And you try not to be at the end because you have no one else to pick at the end, right? So we do this with the kids and I thought, I need to sing more with them. I want to have music more. So not every night, but almost every night, I will pull out my phone and one of the kids gets to pick a song. And admittedly, half the time, they're like, the Mario theme song. I'm like, no, like, let's pick one about God. And we pick one and we turn it on and we sing it together for three minutes. And we sing, and I don't make them sing. If they just want to listen, they can. Or, but most of the time, they want to sing. And we sing it together. We do our prayers and then we go to bed, and it's been so amazing for me to see my little three-year-old or five-year-old or six-year-old begin to develop their own favorite little songs and hymns that they have that they're going to pick that they like the best where they can sing. Singing is so important, and here in this text you see it yet again. Where in heaven they are singing the praises of God. But here's what it says in verse number five. You get to kind of the centerpiece of the text, which is these bowls of wrath. After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So we've seen this in, in previous sermons, that the tabernacle that the children of Israel had that was the mobile temple, and the temple that they eventually built was a prototype of what is in the heavenlies, and there's a temple. And this takes you back to this temple. And it tells you from here, verse number six, seven angels came out, they had the seven plagues and they're like dressed like priests. They're clothed in pure and white linen and they have their breasts girded with golden girdles. They have these breastplates that are, that are there. Verse seven, one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple until... The seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So God puts a do not disturb sign on the door until these plagues and his wrath is poured out. And here is what has struck me for days, like as I wrestle with this text all week. And honestly, this is something that I've been wrestling with for months now. Because since chapter six of Revelation, we have been in like the wrath of God zone. Like the, the core of the book, the, the, the staple, the, the main piece of the middle of the book, the majority of the press in Revelation is given to some heavy stuff. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, uh, vile judgments, plagues. There's all this wrath upon wrath upon wrath and I've been preaching through it and working through it, but I come to chapter number 15 and it, and it hits me like a ton of bricks I'm like, there has to be something wrong with my perspective. Because in verse number one, they're like, great and marvelous, it'll knock your socks off, is not mercy, 
and not truth is the plagues and the wrath of God being filled up. And I'm like, do what? Like, I don't know that I'm excited about this. Then verse number three, you get to it and they sing the song of Moses, which is the song about how God delivered the plagues to Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. And then God like swallowed up in death the army of the Egyptians. And in verse number four, it tells you, who won't fear you, God? Who won't glorify your name, God? Who won't worship you, God? Why? Because your judgments are made manifest. Not who won't worship you because your love is on display. Who won't worship you because you're so gracious. Who won't worship you because your judgment, your, your hand of, of power and, and what seems to us to be heavy-handedness sometimes is put on display. Then you get to verses five, six, seven, and eight, and there is all this pomp, and I dare say even parading about plagues and the wrath of God being filled up. And I, I was just left with this question for, for literally weeks and days. What is happening here? Because they are celebrating what I cringe at. Like my heart and my head do not do what they do in this text. They are staring at and giving glory to the wrath of God and I want to read it and get through it as quick as possible so we can get to the end of Revelation and talk about new heaven and new earth and everything being made right and God putting it all back together and wiping the tears away from our eyes. If I'm, if I'm a thousand percent honest, I just want to get through these chapters as quick as possible so that I can get to the good stuff. Because it like pains me to read it sometimes. Last week, last week was more of this stuff. It was hell an eternal damnation. And here they are praising him for it. And I've had to wrestle with it and just say, there has got to be, like there's some sort of disconnect here. And how can I figure this out? And I don't know that I've figured it all out, but I think that I've, at least for me, I've figured out some of it. And I wanna share with you this morning five truths about the wrath of God and hopefully get you a little bit closer to Revelation 15 in relation to the wrath of God than perhaps where you are today. So here are five truths about the wrath of God that I think will help us, especially as we move into chapters 16 and 17 and 18, because if you've thought that some of these chapters were heavy already, the heaviest is yet to come. So how do we frame this and how do we understand this? So here's truth number one. Do not confuse chastisement and wrath. Don't confuse chastisement or discipline of God with the wrath of God. Now, to help you get to where I want you to get, I want you to engage your brain for a second. I want you to do a mental exercise with me. This comes from uh, a book. I haven't read the book, but I'm familiar with the illustration at the beginning of the book by David Brenner. Brenner writes, he says, imagine God was thinking about you. Imagine for a moment that God is pondering, and he's pondering you. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? That's a very subjective question that only you can answer for you. But if God's thinking about you, what does he feel? And my fear is that most Christians will answer that question with either A, disappointment, 
He's super disappointed in me because I should have been further and I should have had my act together by now and I should have done more. I should be giving more. I should be evangelizing more. I should be doing more for him. Or maybe not disappointment, maybe it's just anger. Which both of those are ways of saying, God thinks about my sin first. When God's thinking about me, he is thinking about my sin and he is reacting to it in negative ways. And we're going to talk about the wrath of God in a minute and we're going to stare it in the face. But I want you to know before we get there that if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you are a child of God, wrath is not for you. It would be entirely unfair and unscriptural for you to place the wrath of God on yourself because the scripture is abundantly clear that you are delivered from that wrath. Now, there is still chastisement. There is still punishment. But even in that, Hebrews makes it clear that God does not punish us like our uh, earthly fathers punish us because our earthly fathers sometimes correct us just for their own convenience. And that God doesn't do that. God corrects us out of a heart of love so that we can live more holy lives. So for a Christian, it is entirely fair for you to say, God is correcting me so that I could be more holy or so that he could win me back or bring me back to a path of righteousness and a path of life. But it is not fair for a Christian to say, God is putting wrath on me so that he can pay me back. That never happens. And my fear is that if you think that God's disposition is thinking about your sin first and there's disappointment and anger that he feels towards you is that you will never want relationship with him. You tell me if, if, I'm, if I'm lying, okay? There's, there's a home here, there's a marriage, we'll say. And one spouse egregiously offends another spouse. And the offended spouse in this marriage decides that they're going to rub their spouse's nose in it all the time they're going to heap shame on them. They're never going to let them forget it. How does that relationship go? They will not want to be around each other and it will not be pretty. Let's say the same thing happens in, in this marriage, but this spouse decides, I'm going to do my best to model the forgiveness of God. And my approach is, I forgive you. It is done. I love you and I'm here to help you. Now you tell me, which relationship will draw close and which will push away. But there are Christians that are delivered from the wrath of God that fundamentally think that their relationship with God is one where God is heaping shame on them and rubbing their nose in their sin and constantly reminding them about it and his, he's boiling about it over and over and over again, which is not true. The truth is that his heart is, look at Jesus in the Gospels. When he sees those that are sinning, that are wrong, what is his heart? It's compassion. He moves towards them in compassion and God's heart towards his children is one of, come here, get in here. I love you, that's wrong. And I may even discipline you for it, but I want you to be on a path of righteousness. I wanna help you. I wanna deliver you from this. I want you to live a, an abundant life. I want to, I'll, I'll forgive you, forget about it. It's done, it's confessed, it's over. I'm not gonna rub your nose anymore. You are my child, I love you, come here. And you have to know that. You have to know that that's God's heart for you. When you think about wrath, you have to be able to tell yourself, the wrath of God is not for me if I am in Jesus Christ. You gotta start there. 
Otherwise, your relationship's toast. But secondly, what you need to know about the wrath of God is that it's aimed primarily at the devil and his agents. You see this in Matthew where Jesus says, don't you know that hell was made for the devil and his angels? And that was the intended purpose. You also see this in Revelation where the wrath of God is aimed primarily at the devil, the antichrist, uh, the false prophet, but I should be clear to note, those that saddle up with him do get the wrath as well. Those that choose to link arms and to say that we're on that team get it as well, but it's aimed primarily. And we should be as Christians at, the, at a baseline level thankful for a God who is angry at sin and will punish it. That's, that's an important concept. Now we'll get to in a minute how severe that punishment is and if the punishment fits the crime. But at a baseline level, we want and need this, don't we? Karl Marx was made famous, uh, the founder of Marxism, by saying that religion's the opium of the masses. That religion is the thing that just kind of puts people in a docile state and helps them be on the lazy river of life and just get through life and eventually die and, and pretend like everything's okay. I, I would argue entirely the opposite and say that atheism at its core, the idea that there is no God and there is no accountability and there is no judgment and I will not give my account of my life to someone who knows all and sees all one day, that that's the opium of the masses. That is what allows you to, to go through life and do some heinous stuff and hurt a lot of people, right? And to leave a lot of people in your wake, but to pretend as though I didn't get caught and no one held my feet to the fire, so I'm, I'm never gonna be held accountable for this. That is what numbs people. But the truth is that there is a God. He is just, there will be judgment, there will be wrath. And that's aimed primarily at the devil and his agents. Number three, wrath does come in active and passive forms. I won't spend long here, but what we will see through Revelation is the active wrath of God. God inserting himself into the situation in some really profound, uh, powerful, heavy ways. But there is passive wrath that Romans 1 talks about when it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. How is it revealed? And Romans 1 will go on to, to tell you, verse number 24, God gives them up to uncleanness through the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, God gives them up unto vile affections. Verse 28, God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Meaning, and just be aware of this, there is a passive wrath of God where God stops playing tug of war with people and says, you know what? Whatever. You want it your way? Have it your way. You want to go down that path? I'm done fighting you. See where it leads you, but I'm done convicting you. I'm done coming after you. I'm done playing spiritual tug of war with you. I'm letting go of the rope and go ahead in your own direction. And that is a, a passive wrath of God. And once again, even God's children don't get that. God will always be there convicting and prodding and wanting to bring you back and win you back when you go against him if you're his child. Number four and number five are what I really want you to know. The wrath of God has an expiration date. This is at least intimated in this text and made clear in others. Verse number one tells you, here's what knocks my socks off. What was it? Seven plagues. And these vials filled with the wrath of God. Some translations will, will render it as 
the completed wrath of God, which is, I think, a fair way of what it's saying. It's not that God has this infinite store of wrath and he has this little bowl, so he's going to take one little bitty part of his wrath and put it in this bowl and divvy it out, but there's still a giant that. It's that all of his wrath is now here, filling up whatever this is, and that all of it is going to be poured out. And what you'll see at the end of Revelation is that there's coming a time where that's no more, where all the judgments are rendered, everyone is held accountable, God does all of, his, all of, the, all of the just judging, and then you're in a new heaven and you're in a new earth and you're in a, you're in a, you're in a different spot. And the point is this, fundamental to God's character is in fact his love. God loves today, and 60 billion years from now, God will still love. Fundamental to God's nature is his justice. But there is coming a time where the wrath that is part of that justice against sin will no longer need to be measured out. That that will be done and over. And that that there is an expiration date on that long term. But in the short term, know that when you put your faith in Jesus, you could put it this way, the expiration date for God's wrath on your life was that day. It expired that day and it's no more. Here's the final and the most important point, I think, of perhaps the whole sermon and what has helped me. God's wrath is true and just. What did, in the song, you, you could almost think in Revelation 15 that you have introduction, wrath, song, Ending, wrath, like these are juxtaposed to each other and very disjointed, but they're not disjointed at all. The song unlocks how you should think about the wrath of God. Because what does it tell you? The works and the ways of God. And which works and ways is, is Revelation 15 most concerned about? His judgment and his wrath. The works and the ways of God are, quote, just and true fair and without error. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Because I meet a lot of Christians that would say, I'm not opposed to a God who will be a judge. We need a judge. We need someone who knows all and sees all and is all and can rightly handle all of this. But where we get messed up is we say, I don't know, I think that's too heavy handed. Yeah, 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 there should be some judgment, but I don't, like, I don't like the way you just did judgment. I don't like plagues. I don't like what I read in chapter number 11. I don't like what I read in chapter number 16. I don't, I don't like the way you handle this. I don't like hell. These things, they're too punitive, they're too nasty, they're too, God, yes, you should judge, but your wrath seems a little unhinged. And we start to treat God the way we start to treat mankind who has wrath, right? Because if I tell you, oh, have you met uh, Chris? Uh, Chris is, he has a lot of wrath. You're like, well, get Chris some counseling. Put Chris in prison and get him reformed. Do something with Chris, right? But we start to treat God this way. God has wrath, so let's get God some counseling. Let's put him in some anger management classes. Let's make sure that we can check his wrath a little bit and make sure that he doesn't, you know, get too unhinged on us. And when I read this, uh, I don't know, that doesn't seem very fair to me. I don't know that I like that. No, 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 no. God's judgments, verse number four, judgments are made manifest and he gets glory for them. Why? Because they're just and they're true. And here's the problem. You think too much of yourself and too little of God. 
if I had to put it to you bluntly. If I say it how I want to say it, that's it. You think you know better than an eternal God, which is funny, right? Just, just a statement. When you're like, I believe in God. What do you mean by God? Well, I mean, like, he's eternal. Like, he's, he's superior to me. Like, he's a different being. He's the only one, one of a kind. He creates everything. But I tell you what, my, I'm here for like three seconds on earth, right? My life is like a vapor. I'm here for three seconds. And let me tell you, I think he handled some stuff wrong. Like, come on. D do we see how that doesn't make sense, right? Like we got five over here in this section who failed fifth grade. We got four over here in this section who's on their fourth marriage. We got three over here in this section who's on your sixth business. We got a few over here in this section who can't get your email inbox to, to inbox zero. But we're going to judge the judgments of God. We're going to be the ones that figure it out and tell God where he's like off the rails, right? Like, God, I mean, 18th century, you nailed it. It was well done. 19th century could have been a little bit better. You know, I think some things could have gone better. What you're doing in South America right now, there's some revival. Two thumbs up. Over in the Middle East, I don't know. I, th I think that we could up our game. B plus, you could get an A, maybe a little bit. Meanwhile, you can't even respond to your voicemails on time, and you're judging God. That's how it is. And it's crazy for people to say, well, I don't know. I just think the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And no, 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 no. Those that are the other side of heaven are looking even at the wrath of God in Revelation 15, as uncomfortable it is for us to talk about it. They're looking at the wrath of God and they're saying glory to you for that. It's, it's, it's big, grady, mega, marvelous. It knocks our socks off. We're going to sing your praises and we are going to stare it in the face. And this is a, this is a cause of celebration. Now, I know that that's counterintuitive, and none of you are like, I'm, I wasn't giddy to celebrate the wrath of God today, but they do. They do. And what helped me the most understand it was not just a, I am finite and God's infinite. That's true. And it tells me that I probably shouldn't argue with God, but it still doesn't help me reconcile it. What helped me reconcile it was the Song of Moses. What is the Song of Moses? It is praise. You could put it this way. You can say it's praise for the deliverance of God's people. You could also say it is praise for the wrath on God's enemies. Both are true. It is praise that God poured out plagues, which is about to happen in chapter 16. It is praise that those who were oppressing and abusing and exploiting and wanting to murder God's people were put down. And most people don't struggle with the Song of Moses. There's a little bit of perspective. And we look and we say, yeah, when I read the Exodus account, it's a cause of celebration. It's like this grand victory. And like we see God winning, but they don't take that same filter and lay it over Revelation. And you need to take that same filter and lay it over Revelation. This is why you've had the interlude of chapters 12 and 13 and 14 to let you see there is this antichrist and this beast and this, this false prophet and there's this persecution of God's people and this, 
it's, I know it's very colorful language. There's this dragon that's trying to devour God's offspring. And, and there's all of this mayhem that is happening and this increase in a global economy, in a global religion. And it's all marching towards the world being against God and his people. And it will be as in the days of Pharaoh, when Pharaoh and his army were put down and God's people were delivered. That is the story of the wrath of God throughout chapters 16, 17, and 18 of Revelation. And we should frame it that way. We should think of it that way because if I read my Bible right, in heaven they think of it that way. So here is my simple challenge. I'm done. This is the most, it, perhaps the most unusual sermon I've ever preached. But my goal is basically twofold. One, to help you see that wrath is not on your life. And if you think when God thinks about you that he's perpetually disappointed and angry and just like regretting that he saved you, That's not biblical. I don't know where you got that. You may have got it from another pastor. You may have got it from your mom. You may have got it from your own head, but it's not true. And you need to know that. But my second goal, my primary goal, is to help you frame the wrath of God in a different way. Because I'm, I'm the first to confess. I'm reading through the book, and I'm reading through the chapters, and there are chapters that deep down I'm wishing weren't there. And I'm beginning to understand that's a me problem. There's a disconnect between the celebration of God and his wrath and me cringing at it. And it's not a Bible problem. It's a me problem. And my paradigm needs to switch. And I think it is switching some for me, and I hope that it is some for you as well.